If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And as you're flipping there, a reminder that we're still in this turning from beautiful, rich doctrines to now more application, I guess you could call it, from indicatives, the, the grounding of the gospel, to the imperatives of the gospel. And as Paul's starting this turn last week, we looked at virtues, things that, the, that he's urging the Ephesians to embody, and they are good things, humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another as they live this Christian life. And now he's going he's gonna to go back to doctrine a bit, but it's for a very important reason. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful passages uh, in Ephesians. It's, many scholars believe, an early even creed um, that either Paul had already been familiar with, or, and I like this, one commentator said, I mean, we believe that, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul's words when he dictated this letter. And it could have even been that this became a creed because Paul's inspired at the moment while he's writing this letter out. But it's, you, you'll see why it sounds creedal as we read it together. So turn your attention now to the reading of God's word. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, this is one of the most ancient confessions of your people, that you are one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We pray that you would be with us throughout this service and in this time together, that we would reflect on the the beauty and the depths of your oneness and how we are to reflect that this unity of purpose of mission of message and of ministry be with us now lord in the name of your son jesus christ amen it's a very repetitive piece of scripture right i mean as you, you when i said it was a creed you can almost hear the repetitiveness one 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 all 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 it's intentional. I mean, it almost has to be intentional because uh, it is so exact. I mean, even the way it's written and composed in the Greek that you, you can say one, actually, a couple of different ways or write it out. And Paul uses one seven times in just this passage. And the way it is even structured, I mean, it kind of moves from the spirit to the Lord to God the Father who's over all and in all and is all in all. I mean, it's this encompassing confession. But as I said past couple weeks, we're moving to practical application, right? We're moving towards where we got all these things ahead of us in Ephesians about how to live the new life, how families are supposed to be structured and, and interact with one another, how we're supposed to defend ourselves against Satan's devices is the very last chapter of Ephesians. I mean, this is a manual for the Christian life, but this is doctrine again. Why is he talking about doctrine again? I thought we were pivoting. I thought we were moving towards doing things. I think it's important for us to, to address that because too often we want to get busy doing something. 
right? We, I was talking with somebody right before the service about being ill a little bit and resting and, and eventually you just you rest enough you want to get back up even if you're not 100% you want to be doing something because it makes you feel alive right it makes you feel like you're still a value or you've you're getting things done so why are we focusing almost slowing down it feels like here again to make this wonderful confession well it's because doctrine is applicable to your life it actually has things to tell you about how to live it. And Paul here is eager to point out that just as he had been speaking in the previous verse about how they're supposed to exude these virtues to one another and do these things of trying to be humble with one another, trying to be gentle with one another, trying to be patient with one another, as we do those things, we're united. So we have to believe things that unite us. Shared belief and values are what keep us together. And this, this unity isn't just our own endeavors. I mean, it reflects the unity of God. The, the reason I say that the repetitive nature of one is probably intentional is because it's seven times. And we don't get much into symbology or numerology in the Bible because you can, you can take a weird detour real quickly. But seven is a pretty big number throughout Scripture. And so it is interesting that he would repeat one seven times, and we confess that God is one. Scholars are maintaining that this is him trying to, Paul's trying to allude to this perfection of God. He wants us to get this big picture. And one of the ways he does this, not just by repeating one, but the way he repeats it, what he, what he says, it's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I mean, those are, those are the bullet points for the sermon, right? Because they're just, they're easy. I mean, it's a, an immensely easy text to preach from. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through and see how Paul is so eloquently capturing the unity of God that we are called to be unified with. And he's also celebrating the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although he's going to flip it around a bit. And so we're going to look at that. But in order to maintain the unity of spirit, that's what he said in if, uh, the verse just before this, be eager to maintain the unity of spirit. This is what we believe. This is our confession that unites us. And so he starts by saying we have to be one with the spirit. In verse 4, he says there's one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I mean, the body is a great metaphor for the church, right? Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 12, where he has that, I mean, it's almost funny when you read it. He talks about, you know, the eye can't tell the hand, you know, I don't need you, and the, the mind can't say, you know, you, you start, you imagine a body part just saying, I don't want to be part of the body anymore and walking off. I mean, it, it's impossible. We are, as we come into the Christian faith, united, Paul says, to Christ's body. We're pieced together and we form, you know, the old adage, we are the hands and feet of Christ in the world. The way people experience Christ will be through their experience of the church and the members of the church, the little body parts that you represent when you are out in the world. And we can't just say to each other, Eh, you're not important enough in the church, or you don't, 
I, we, we're okay. We don't need any more volunteers for the potluck. We don't. We definitely don't need your cooking there. We've got it covered, right? You can bring the plates. I wouldn't take offense to that, but I just like to show up and eat. But you, we, you need your whole body to move, to breathe, to do things. So Greta had swim lessons all this week, and I got to go with her one night, and she was learning the backstroke, and. <laughs> You can't just move your arms, right, when you're doing the backstroke. You have to kick your legs. And then, and I never thought about this because you kind of forget these things, but it's not just arms and legs that have to be coordinated. You got to keep your head in the right position and you got to keep your belly button up. And this was hilarious. All the girls could keep their belly buttons up and the three boys in that class, they just sunk. They could not do it. I mean, you have to tell your belly button, I need you. You never think about your belly button, but it's important if you're doing the backstroke, it's gotta be up or else you're gonna sink. Paul says there is one body. There is one group of believers that are interdependent and we all need each other. Francis Schaeffer had this famous sermon where he said there's no, such, there's no little people. There are no little members of Christ's body. We are all important. We may just have different giftings, which he's going to get to in a few verses later. But this one body is empowered. It's filled with a spirit, just like you actually have a soul. You just got one of them, right? There's not two souls roaming around you. There's one body, one soul. There is one body of Christ. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And when you look at your text, I mean, it should have the spirit capitalized. This is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And so that's why I said, you know, when we think about this as a creed, we say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, you may have expected, well, when we say the Apostles' Creed, when you say the Nicene Creed, you always say, Father, and you have the whole Almighty God, Father, you have that whole part, and then you get to the Son, and then the Holy Spirit last. So why is Paul flipping it here? Well, he wants to start, like I said, with, with practicality. He wants to start with the spirit that, that is what converts you and brings you into the church. The spirit is what unites us when we're at church. The spirit is what empowers the church on her mission. So a good way to talk about something to unite the church is let's begin with the thing that's uniting them, the spirit that is at work in us, that empowers us to stay focused on the mission that he gave us, which is to go into all the world telling people about Jesus Christ, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. And just as we are called now to be one body and one spirit, we're called to have one hope, one ultimate goal, one ultimate vision for what lays ahead. And this is something that the world needs most right now. I mean, I alluded to it in the pastoral prayer, but I, I had to take a break from the news this week because every time I turned it on, and you may say, well, that's every week, but just you think about things or you're hit, impacted by things differently, you know, at certain times. And just this week, every time I even glanced at a news headline, it was horrible. I mean, not just like, oh, that's bad. I mean, horrible. And as I was reflecting on some of the news stories I read, whether it was shootings or countries being overturned because of economic uh, fallout or corruption in another country or just disasters, natural disasters, 
you hear people that are interviewed from these things and you hear hopelessness. What's going to fix us? Who's going to see us through this mess? How am I going to rebuild now that everything around me is destroyed? It, there is no hope. And when people are going through, no matter what the circumstances, when, when you're going through a hard time, we all lose sight of that hope. Whether it's hope that, you know, okay, I can rebuild the house, or hope that, all right, maybe the next doctor's appointment will be better, or hope that maybe we'll elect a good, solid person to lead us that isn't corrupt or easily manipulated. Whatever that, that hope might be, I mean, you, you can have it, but you go through that time when you just can't see it. There's always that doubt, like, maybe it's not going to turn out right. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. The Psalms are filled with prayers from the man after God's own heart who at times lost sight of hope and said, do you see me? I am failing. Do you see me? I have, I'm surrounded by enemies. And when, when David writes some of these Psalms, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking about Saul's armies surrounding him, or he's thinking about his own son who tries to take his throne from him, and he has David has to flee Jerusalem. He knew what it was like to suffer and to lose sight of hope. And what does he do when he has to get hope back? He prays. He's surrounded by other saints, by people that won't abandon him. That One of the most beautiful stories of hope and, and loyalty in the Bible is when David's leaving Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellion, and he comes across, David's basically perched up on a hill, and he's watching the people, his people, leave Jerusalem, and he's weeping because they're suffering because of Absalom, and he sees a foreigner. His name's Ittai the Gittite, and Ittai was a great soldier. He was basically a mercenary who came and worked for Judah and Israel under David, and David's like, save yourself. You don't need to come with me and get caught up with, in this. You are not even, you're not even part of my body. You're not part of this people. And Ittai the Gittite says, yes, I am. I am united to you. Where you go, I will go. Your enemies are my enemies. I am with you. I am not going to abandon the king. And it stirs David. It gives him hope. His own flesh and blood's trying to kill him, and this stranger says, I'm with you. I can see hope that you can't see right now. God will get us through this. And that's, that's what we do to the world. We announce that there is a way to get through everything that you see falling around you, whether it's your own personal life, and so you're reflected in, or you're like me looking at the news stories, reflected outward thinking, what could save this world? the hope of Christ. And that alone, it's not going to be social policy, it's not going to be economics, it's not going to be infrastructure support. The one thing that we need more than any other things right now is hope, and the only place you're going to find it is in Jesus Christ. That's the calling. It's the one hope that belongs to your call, that brought you from light to darkness. It was that spirit, that one spirit that was at work in you to bring you to a place of hopelessness to hope. But, like my daughter learning to keep her head a certain way to make her body move, 
we as a body have one head. Paul already talked about that earlier in Ephesians. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. So we confess that we have one Lord. That's what verse 5 says. And, and notice, so there were th- there's one spirit, and there's three kind of one things that went with it. The body, the spirit, hope. And then for this verse 5, there's one Lord, and there's two other uh, ones that go with it. One faith and one baptism. We have one Lord, King Jesus. In, in the book of uh, Church Order, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with, it begins with one head of the church is Jesus Christ. Why? I mean, does, Scripture says that. Why do we as Presbyterians emphasize it? Because there's other churches that don't emphasize it. The Church of England does not have Jesus Christ as the sole head. It has the queen as the head of the church. The Roman Catholics do not have Jesus Christ as the sole head. They have the Pope as head over the church. We confess that there can be one head, and it's not a human being. It is the Lord. And more than this, you know, when you come across people that say, well, Christianity as a faith, you know, Jesus never called himself divine. He would never, he was a good Jew. He would never have taken on this idea that he somehow was God. I mean, that would be blasphemy. But that's also what he's accused of. I mean, he's accused of blasphemy. That's one of the charges brought against him. And while there are verses where Jesus definitely identifies himself with Yahweh, the God uh, of Israel, Paul is doing that right here, right? When it says one Lord, the word there in Greek is kurios. Paul was steeped in Israel scriptures, but during Paul's time, they didn't have them just in Hebrew anymore. They had them translated into the Greek, which throughout the Old Testament, when you come across uh, in the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it comes to the word, the name of God, Yahweh, like when he reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses and he says, I am, that's, that's Yahweh. When it comes to that part, the Greek translation is curious, curious, curious. So when I prayed from Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All those lords, it's, it's curious. So what Paul is saying here, there is one Lord. He means there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, who is one Lord, the God of Israel. This Jesus that we worship and follow is God. That's why he was able to do everything he was able to do. And this, too, there's only one Lord. There's not two. That means there's not a political Lord over us. There is only God. When Peter is uh, persecuted early on in Acts, this is one of the th- famous things he says as the Sanhedrin is weighing against him, which is a mixture of, of not just religious law, but some political things. I mean, they want to keep peace with Rome. And they tell them, please stop preaching in Jesus' name. And their answer is, we can't listen to men. We have to listen to God. We have one Lord. And this one Lord gives us one faith. There's the famous passage in Jude, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, we have confessions and catechisms that teach us this one faith. We teach it to our children. I mean, it's the, it could be the ABCs of it, but you know, there is a God, 
and he has spoken the world into existence and he loved the world he loved his people and his people rebelled against him and so he didn't stop loving them but provided a way for them to come back to him and he gave us his son and this son came and he was human and he lived among us and he died for us he was resurrected and now he sits at the right hand of god the father waiting to come back that's the one faith and why is this practical because if we have if we're confessing that we have one lord we know that when other people come around saying well i'm jesus again or jesus gave me this word mm, i have one lord and i have one faith that's why paul says if anybody else comes preaching something other than what i've preached to you even if it's an angel you don't listen you don't follow doctrine is applicable because doctrine can save you if you are actually reading your bibles if you're going through uh, books on theology i'm not talking about great big tomes but something that's accessible that can in instruct you and give you knowledge of divine things then when people come around saying false things it's going to be immensely applicable because you can point out that sounds like you're saying you're kind of like jesus or that sounds something other than the one faith that has been handed down throughout the christian church i guess it would be important to say here this is so steeped in unity this is so steeped in oneness of the christian body we're Presbyterian, across the streets of Baptist, down the streets of the Episcopalian, the Methodist, we're clearly not united. We have some differences of opinion. But there's two things to keep in mind here. First of all, the oneness that Paul is talking about is in mind, I think I talked about this last week too, he's in thinking of the local church. We definitely here need to be the one body of Christ. We need to have one spirit, one mind, all the things I've been going through so far, we need to be united. The rest of Christendom, the rest of the body of Christ, for the most part, would be able to confess all the same things I'm confessing. And we have in Scripture a time where Paul and Barnabas decided they were having an issue about how to minister, and they separated for a while. But Paul didn't run around saying, he's, he's apostate. Barnabas, stay away from him. No, they, they come back together and do ministry together. But, so that we can still be united even if we are worshiping in different uh, spaces. C.S. Lewis used the phrase, you know, the church is the giant house. You know, you go into the house, you come into a hallway. You don't live in the hallway of the church, though. You find yourself a room. And he said, I just happen to find my room in the Anglican church. But we can be united uh, confessing one Lord, one spirit, one body. And one of the ways we do this is by confessing sacraments one baptism now i don't know why he doesn't also include communion but it could be because baptism is the first sacramental act it's something that unites all christians right i don't know of a single denomination that doesn't practice this we may disagree on who gets baptized or when they get baptized or how they get baptized but the entryway, the, the way you get joined to the body, the way the Spirit is at work in you, the way the, you acknowledge the Lord's lordship over you is by receiving the sacrament of baptism. It's what unites people of faith together. It reflects that circumcision used to be given to show visibly that they were united to the people of Israel. And now 
we do it to everybody so that it's not just for boys, it's for daughters as well. There's no distinction now between who gets the sign of the covenant. Everybody who professes faith or everybody who is born to a person who professes faith in Christ gets this sign and seal of baptism. And it's a way to represent our, our surrender and our acknowledgement of a one Lord. So we've gone to the Spirit, we've, we've seen the Lord at work, and now we come to verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There is one God, but we've just talked about the Spirit, and we confess the Spirit is God. There is one God the Father, but we talk about the Son, who is God and Lord. And then we come here and we say, there's one God the Father, are Christians just really awful at math? That sounds like three. One of my uh, systematic theology professors in seminary used to always do this. He'd, he'd go, I mean, I, I, no matter how many times I do it, one plus one plus one equals one. The mystery here of the Trinity is something that like, all preachers worry about because how do you even try to describe it? And yet I'm asking you to, I'm not even asking you, I'm telling you it's taught here in Scripture because it never uh, limits or pushes down or plays down any other members of the Trinity, right? Jesus says, I and the Father are one in John's Gospel. And then he also says, We're, we are sending the Spirit who is the Comforter, who will teach you righteousness. He is the seal of God's work in your life. All three of these persons of the Trinity are at work in your life, and yet we still confess that there is one God, because that's what we have always confessed. And he is all in all. He's the Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. I mean, he is everywhere. He is all-encompassing. There is nothing that you can think of that God has not already thought of. There is no place you can go where God has not already gone. And this gives us hope. It brings us back to that there is hope in the world because God is so immense. Providence, the sovereignty of God, is a great comfort, even when everything's falling apart. Because if he is everywhere, if he has this design and plan where before the foundations of the world he chose to save you, then he has you where he wants you. It may be uncomfortable, but he still has you. And he's not going to lose you because he's over all. And he's at work in all. And there is something that he is doing, even if it is terrible and terrifying. Paul also said that he works good for those who love him. I'm, I'm reminded of I was promised I wasn't going to do a nerdy illustration, but it just, it's the way the Spirit led me. At the, in the, uh, let me get the nerdy reference right. In Lord of the Rings, when Frodo is trying to give Sam some hope, when everything has just gone terribly wrong and they're tired and they've been attacked and Frodo's still carrying around the ring, it, Sam encourages him by the, you know, the reason we're doing these things is there's still some good in the world. There's still some sliver to fight for. It's worth fighting for. 
the church going forward in the next 10, 15, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, is going to have to proclaim to a world that there is something worth fighting for. There's something worth this Christian faith, worth living for. Because as you continue to go out into the world and see all the confusion and the fear and the terror, people are going to be looking for, is there anything worth living for? I mean, nihilism, depression, anxiety seems to now almost come with you at birth in our young people because we have lost one hope. The church's mission will be to tell everybody, all, about the God over all, who works in all, who's going through all, that there is a hope in him and him alone. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you are so much bigger than our fears, so much bigger than the, the trials and warfares, that you're so much bigger than all of us humans, that you watch over us, that you are all in all, that you have united us together and given us a, a spirit, not of fear, but of hope and love. May we cling to that one hope this week, Father. Would you bring something across our way at a time of, of darkness or despair that points us to the one hope that you've called us to, that points us back to our Savior and gets us through it? Father, give us somebody this week that we can tell about Jesus Christ, that we can tell them of hope in a hopeless world. Not to build ourselves up, but to be good members of the body, to be good servants, to be the hands and feet of Christ, that we may be united in this mission to glorify you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing hymn, hymn 347, the church.